Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by David Walsh. David is the force behind Ilan, the definitive guide to the islands of Ireland. And today we'll talk about his journey to catalog and detail each of the islands, which have been his favorites and which have been the hardest, and more. And a big thanks to Des Keeney for referring David to us. Before we get to our chat with David, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. You'll find everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries, and their latest addition to the menu, Expedition Skills. It's all in one place. So if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. Enjoy today's episode with David Walsh. Hi, David. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hi. I appreciate you joining me today. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Good. So tell us how you discovered sea kayaking. By accident, really. Uh, I was a hill walker in my youth and then followed on from that. I was a, a rock climber and I'd been at that for about 20 years uh, when I was on a trip up in the Arctic to uh, Spitsbergen in the Svalbard archipelago. And uh, one night we were after doing a climb and we were in our boat when into the bay came four sea kayaks and I was blown away. I just I just knew that the next part of my life had started and it did. I bought a Nordcap sea kayak within six weeks of coming home and I never looked back. So what was it about sea kayaking that just captivated you at that moment? I just felt that it was really a new frontier. I just It was so raw and so rugged and f- so different to anything else that I'd ever done. I mean, even hill walking in the time that I was hill walking from my youth in the 1960s, uh, where you'd go half a mile out of your way if you saw another hill walker on the hills just to say hello and exchange the time of day, to the place being overrun. Ireland is overrun with hill walkers now. It's a huge uh, activity. Everybody's at it. But sea kayaking was a, an absolute minority sport writ large. It, it just there was nobody at it. So out beyond the, the, the low water mark, out beyond the surf line in Ireland, you won't meet anybody else. You just won't. You can go out to an island and camp on it, and it's all yours. It's it's just different. Did you combine any sea kayaking and, and climbing trips? Well, I did initially. Um, I was still a very keen rock climber. I'd um, uh, The very first sea kayaking trip I went on was to the island of Oi in Donegal, and uh, we did seven or eight new rock climbing routes there. We had seen Oe from a nearby island which is accessed by road over a bridge called Critch Island in Donegal and we had seen how much better Oe would be if only it could get there but it was an abandoned island. Most of the islands off the west coast of Ireland are abandoned and Oe was no exception. You couldn't get there, there was no ferry so when I discovered sea kayaking that was an obvious way to get there. We went there, we put up seven or eight routes and Lo and behold, it's a mecca. It's a very attractive place now for very hard rock climbing. It's of international significance. Uh, I, I, I understand there's about 300 routes there, all in the extreme grades. 
Wow. And so it undiscovered for climbing prior to that and then uh, completely undiscovered for climbing prior to that. We we were the first because of the the sea kayaking and sea kayakers were the second wave to go there and the third wave then got into industrial stuff and they organized ferries uh, and a, a contract locally with somebody to take them out. Okay. Uh, but initially it was all sea kayaking. Now, have you been back to Spitsbergen to paddle? Oh, no. I intended to go there and I wanted to go there. I planned a trip there, but it didn't come off. It's uh, much more serious than anything else I ever did anyway, logistically, because you have to carry a gun and all sorts of anti-polar bear stuff. I mean, all the other places that I have paddled abroad, you didn't have anything like that. Even in Greenland, I was in Greenland twice or three times kayaking. And I mean, the west coast of Greenland is is bear free. They haven't seen a bear on the west coast of Greenland for 40, 50 years, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, but Svalbard is overrun with with bears. So it's 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 not for the faint hearted. I have four children, so it wasn't an option. <laughs> now, you mentioned Greenland. So tell us about the Cape Farewell expedition that you organized. Uh, that was the first time I went uh, to, to Greenland. That was in 2004. I took up uh, the sea kayaking in 1990 and I progressed through the system and did the training, became an instructor and a leader and that sort of thing. But my ambition always was to get amongst icebergs. I mean, that's where kayaking came from and it's what it's all about. I was not going to be a happy camper until I had been up amongst icebergs. And I devised the notion of a a trip to Cape Farewell specifically because it's a broken archipelago off a major headland at the south tip of Greenland and I knew you could jump from island to island and find campsites here and there and what have you. I had when in back in my climbing days at the age of 25 in 1975 I led a climbing expedition to the roughly to the Cape Farewell area uh, for about eight weeks and we did a number of unclimbed summits but uh, I just knew from my memory of the place, uh, even though it was 30 years before, I knew it was an absolute haven for sea kayaking. So it turned out to be, but uh, again, it was rough stuff, yeah. Let's, let's start with the logistics, but getting there, how did you, uh, how'd you manage that part of the process? Well, it, that, that was actually an easy part because, because of the mountaineering and because the Cape Farewell area is such a popular area for for climbing at least not down at cape farewell itself now we were completely off the grid once we headed for the cape itself Uh, but the nearest town is about 50 or 60 miles away and it's called nanortalik and it's the center of a thriving industry for uh, for mountaineers and for sailing and all of that sort of thing and people go there and it's been there's been a very well-developed tourist industry there since Oh, since way back, and it was easy to organize higher kayaks. Anybody into kayaking will tell you that if you want to go abroad, the big problem is getting the kayak to the start of the route that you want to paddle when you get there. Uh, and we have solved that problem in all sorts of different ways over the years. But the easiest way to solve it is to put your hand in your pocket and hire a kayak. If there's a kayak where you want to paddle, uh, you just hire it and that's it. And that's solved that part of it. And there's supermarkets and things like that in in Nortelik. So we were able to get all of our food locally and supply ourselves and head off into the wild blue yonder. It was great. Easy, okay. easy, right. really, that part of it. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Now, how long was the trip? 
Uh, well, we were on the water for two weeks, but we didn't need the whole of the two weeks because when you get a window of opportunity to strike at the, the crux pitch of what you're about to do, you go for it. And we did, and we paddled almost nonstop for, I, th I think two days were more or less combined, and we got around the thing, and we had the job done in, in about a week. Uh, so we then were able to holiday for the rest of the time, catching the local fish are lovely. Well, that's not so bad being able to enjoy it. it it wasn't no once the job was done once the job was done yes <laughs> now how many of you were on that trip uh six started one guy got injured almost immediately with that repetitive strain injury on your wrist tino cedo phytus i hope i'm pronouncing that some way correctly but i mean after after the first day or two, uh, he, he just came down with this and had to retire. And we left him off at an Eskimo settlement. Mm. And they looked after him, got him back to Nortelik, and we saw him two weeks later. Uh, but five of us kept on going. And we had a couple of weather-based difficulties at first, then another couple of difficulties. And then the opportunity came, and we just uh, we went for it. We just went for it and kept going at it until we got it. Okay. Now, aside from getting there, what other logistical issues did you have i guess or how, how did you manage that process well i suppose clothing i'm in a generation of uh, kayaker that uh, doesn't like dry suits uh, so i mean it was to get decent clothing that uh, that would do the job I, I i would have thought clothing was very rudimentary in those days uh, i mean dry suits were available but they were horrible okay. and um, we used other things the stuff you wouldn't use today now technology's gotten so much better uh, the equipment is, it is getting better, yeah, it's some lovely stuff out there now. Now, uh, what other things did you experience along the trip? Um, cold, wet, discomfort, warmth, dry, comfort, the, the, the whole gambit really, uh, I mean icebergs and except for out at the cape itself and then there's an associated cape beside it that you've got to get around headland, you've got to get around it and ex except for those two hard portions uh, really it was a question of uh, dodging through pack ice rather than any surge and send in the water i i still have the occasional nightmare about um some of the icebergs that we've met at cape farewell itself i mean when you've got this something the size of um twickenham going up and down 15 or 20 feet beside you in the water um, in the swells and you're trying to dodge between that and another thing which the size of a middling embassy somewhere and the two of them going up and down beside each other and you have to dodge between them it it was quite frightening but most of the time it was just dodging through the the, the flat pack ice now any specific mishaps that you, you'd care to recount i personally was going off to try and get a, a weather forecast with another guy and we brought we had a, a vhf radio with us for the purpose and i was crossing a river and i fell and we, we thought the leg was broken for a while, but um, everybody carried my gear for a day or two. And I, I just got on with it. And uh, But the leg got better, so it can't have been broken. What was the weather like on the trip? Very mixed. No, I mean, you just had to get on with it. But kayakers are only really afraid of wind. They don't care about anything else. Yeah. So, I mean, you just you just get on with it when you have a job to do. There's two types of expeditions where there's a job to do and one where you just have to go there and experience being there. It's a different type of expedition and you'd have a different uh, there'd be a, a different motivation but when when you have a job to do like getting around an island or past a headland or something like that you just get on with it if you can and the only thing you're afraid of is wind you'll put up with anything else and forget about it and not complain 
So what advice might you have for somebody who is thinking about a trip to Cape Farewell? Oh, go there, go there. It's absolutely splendid. It's still the middle of nowhere. You must understand that the west coast of Greenland is the inhabited part, but it's only inhabited down to within about 50 or 60 miles of Cape Farewell and up as far as Upernavik in the north, which is up beyond the capital city and so on. And there's ferries and things go in between them and it's uh, there's cities and towns and uh, boats and ferries and all that sort of thing. But the minute you go south of Nanortalik or north from Upernavik, I've done both. You're in unspoiled country where you'll meet almost nobody for the 10 or 14 days that you're on the water. Now, it's a different experience. The weather is very settled up in the northwest. I was up there twice in 2008 and in 2016, and it's it's very, very pleasant going altogether. Cape Farewell is the rough and tumble. It's like the west of Ireland combined, just throw in icebergs. So tell us about that, that northwest area. You said that it was uh, much more agreeable oh it was yes you can go there and enjoy it as you're doing it because the weather it's up beyond i'm sure you know how meteorology works globally you've got these various bands and the the polar band is invariably down further than where it is it's up at about the 74th parallel so you're up beyond that and you're in the sustain if the weather changes it takes about four days to change to go from good to bad or bad to good but very often you're up beyond where the sun goes below the horizon at night. It just dips to the horizon in early August, which is when we were there. And it just means you'd have these iron blue, beautiful cobalt blue skies 24 hours a day. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Flat water, beautiful scenery, meet absolutely nobody for 10 or 14 days. It really recharges the batteries. It's just wonderful. So for someone who would be considering going to Greenland, uh, would you consider it a friendly place in terms of organizing a trip, or is it uh, fairly complex to organize a trip there? It's very friendly. Uh, I mean, the North Lake in the south, we were able to hire kayaks in 2004. We weren't able to do that in 2008 when we went to Upernavik the first time uh, at the other end of the spectrum. So we created six boats and shipped them up which is a an odd thing there was a, there's a a kayaker in dublin who's in the shipping business and he was able to put it all together for us and one of the guys on the trip was a carpenter so he was able to make the crate custom make the crate to fit the six kayaks and uh, send it up there but the locals the danish and the inuit uh, were so impressed there's active kayaking clubs up there and they were so impressed with our efforts that they wanted to buy our kayaks, but we wouldn't sell them, should have maybe. And um, they uh, they uh, got in their own kayaks and they're now hiring them. So anybody going there after 2008, no problem. You can, the same thing, the easiest way to go on a big trip abroad is to find somebody who'll hire you a kayak at the start of your trip and just hire the kayak and you bring up your personal gear, you buy your food and away you go. And you can do that now in Northwest Greenland or in Southwest Greenland. Now it takes two or three days to get there and two or three days to get back. In each case, you have to go through Iceland to get to the South and Denmark to get to the North. But the whole thing is well worth it and very affordable really as, as big international trips go. 
So that was 2004 for Cape Farewell and uh, 2008 uh, going north, and you mentioned 2016, but I'm going to go backward just a little bit here, and you were a founding member of the Irish Sea Kayaking Association in 1995. So tell us a little bit about the association. I would have thought it was before 1995, actually. I, I would have placed it now in 91. Okay. I'm sorry about that. That's uh, all right. It just happened. Uh, a kayaker called Ursula McPherson was hosting the Sea Kayaking Symposium that year. Uh, at that stage, it was only one year in Ireland run by the kayakers themselves. Uh, there was no national association. Uh, but when we were there and she had us all captive up in Garten Outdoor Pursuit Centre, she got everybody to give her two euros and um, everyone who was in the room was a founding member of the Irish Sea Kayaking Association. It was a fantastic trip for the weekend. Uh, we got around Horn Head, which is one of the major objectives up in Donegal. And uh, the whole thing was great, but it started off the whole association. And uh, uh, every, everybody was asked to help out in any way they could. And um, I very soon, I, I think it was about two years later, I took over the, the job of running it. Uh, it was set up first by a fellow called uh, Kevin O'Callaghan. Everybody knows him as Geo. I don't know why, but uh, he ran it for a couple of years and then I took it over and I ran it for about eight or nine years, ten years maybe. Okay. I gave it, I only uh, I only retired from running the ISKA, the Irish Sea Kayaking Association, in order to, to get the first edition of Ilan published. I, you know, it just, it was too big. Publishing a book is a, it's a big old job. So let's hear about Ilan. It happened by accident. One of the first trips we went on in, I think, 1991, could have been just weeks after the, the, the event that I'm talking about, but I could be muddled in the, the time of the year and even the years. We were going on, I conceived the notion of a trip for myself and two other paddlers to, to go up the coast from Clifton up as far as Belmullet without touching the mainland. You could island hop. It just seemed such an extraordinary, adventurous sort of a thing to do. And uh, we, we got going at it and we made very slow progress, at, particularly at first. And then things started to to get together and you typically you'd have maybe two islands, uh, 12 or 15 miles apart. And an example of that is Inish Boffin and Inish Turk. And in the middle, there was an island called Davilon. And we were trying to find if it was possible to land on it to break the journey because say 12 miles in a sea kayak is between three and four hours depending on how fast you paddle and if you could break the journey it would be nice imagine i mean if you were going on a three or four hour airplane journey you'd get up and walk the length of the plane on some pretext or excuse at some stage to to break the journey if you could uh, and it was the same. We wanted to land on it, but we couldn't find any information for it. And I th we missed it as a result. We didn't get to land on it. And I always thought that was terribly sad. We debated it and what you could do about it. And I just said I was going to start taking notes. My background was in mountaineering and mountaineers love to record all the, that they did this for the first time. And or they were the first to do this and the first to do that. It's in the nature of mountaineering. And I was also a bird watcher. And if you when it comes to keeping records, there's nobody like those boys. <laughs> the most competitive hobby I was ever involved in is bird watching. It's absolutely savage. I was no stranger to taking detailed notes as I went and being able, to, the important thing is to be able to access the notes. So I kept them in an organized way. 
Word processing had just started at that stage as well, which was a, another major thing. You still had no World Wide Web, but there was email, or is it the other way around? Anyway, I, I started taking notes that the loss of that island on that trip and landing on it that we didn't land on it. I went back many, many years later. It was actually my 400th personal island to land on about 12 or 15 years later. And just the loss of that island spurred the whole thing on. And I kept taking the notes and I put out an appeal to the sea kayaking community. Did anybody have notes? And there was people who had gone out to small groups of islands and kept detailed notes of your land here and your camp there and there's water in a well behind an abandoned house and the other place or there's a stream with clear water in it and all that kind of thing it's just very valuable just very very basic stuff and it just it grew and grew exponentially at first and it it just took on a life of its own and it started to dictate the manner in which i did my sea kayaking i mean i always intended to do all my sea kayaking in ireland i don't know how i got into dragged into doing so many trips abroad. So that one trip birthed an idea for a book. And uh, for those for those unfamiliar with it, where did the name Ilan come from? Well, it's the Irish word for islands, plural. It's Ilan. It's uh, it's the plural of the word Ilan, which means an island. If you think of all the Scottish places where you've got Ilan of this and Ilan of that, uh, it's the same word. It means an island. So from the name of the book, as well as uh, the description that you get, uh, you just gave. So the book covers the islands of Ireland. Yes. So how many islands are included in the book? Currently 574. And how many islands are there? <laughs> well, I keep going. I keep redefining what an island is, and I keep getting more generous to myself. But there's currently 612 on the soft copy version, which you'll find on ilon.org. And uh, it's always up to date and it's free. Anybody can go on the website and and uh, look up whatever they want to look up yeah. on it. They don't need a copy of the book in their hand. But the book is for sale. Yes. And there's something magical about having a book in your hand, too. And I've got my copy right here. I'm a bibliophile myself, so I understand the what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so of the, um, the 574 that are in the book and the 612 that are on the website, how many have you visited? I'd have to check that. I think it's 537. So what's the plan for the remaining islands? There's more left. There are, but it's. <laughs> I've gone back to, to rock climbing now, whence I came, before I went into the sea kayaking. Um, I just, I always kept in touch with all my old buddies and they're all still at it from the 1980s. I mean, I'm 73. My climbing partner is 82. Mm-hmm. And um, there's one guy in the group is 89. Wow. And we're still active and we're going to Spain in two weeks' time to do some sports climbing down in a place called Calpe. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 good to keep active and so on. But I uh, drifted away, if you'll forgive an appalling pun, I've drifted away <laughs> from the sea hiking a little bit. Okay. Uh, but I do, when I'm on holidays or in some part of the country, I, I always study locally to see if, there, if there's something immediately available to me um, that I haven't done. And I try to whittle away at the... The, the the list there's 70 i think that i haven't done right. something like that and uh, i've the best of intentions but you know yourself now you mentioned that you'd become more generous in what qualifies as an island so what currently qualifies as an island uh, it's more of an art form than a science um, if, if there's this push pulls uh, i mean a bare rock can get included if it's important enough if you can take it that there's the beating heart of 
Irish sea kayaking on the east coast of Ireland is, uh, let's say, Dawkey, Dawkey Island. And off Dawkey Island, there's a small rock called the Muglins, with, and nobody ever lands on it because it's just a, a, a little mark on it and so on. But, but, but people do play in the tide races around it. So it's got a long piece in it, uh, in the book about it, just telling you all about how the tides work around it and that sort of thing. That's important. I mean, the same rock down in Wexford or off Cork mightn't get a mention at all. I mean, why would it? But and then I, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't harm your chances to have grass on top. <laughs> It doesn't harm your chances to be uh, fully surrounded by water at all stages of the tide, but it isn't essential. Okay. I mean, if there's information about this island, I mean, things can distinguish an island, either its size or its character in some shape or form, that you just want it in there. I mean, there's a small rock off Cahir Daniel in Kerry. I went there one time and I was landing it because I was hoovering up everything in the area. And I, I was blown away with the quality of the rock climbing. I wasn't a rock climber at that time, but it's called Ilan Awilan. And it's subsequently been developed as a rock climbing crag by a fellow who wrote to me and told me it was Ilan that put him onto it and led to the development of the, the climbing there. So there's all sorts of different reasons why something would be in and a similar thing if it was 50 miles away or 50 yards away might not be in but basically it has to be surrounded by water but in order to be comprehensive it's not possible to be too judgmental about it yeah so based on the significance of that piece it might might make an inner or mine or not if it adds anything it's in so which have been your favorite islands to catalog and why Oh, well, well, they come in different categories. Uh, my favourites would tend to be, I suppose most people would, would be the formerly inhabited islands, such as Owe we already mentioned. Mm -hmm. And of them, I would have thought that 30 years ago, one of the first that I came upon was Inish Kay, south off the coast of Mayo, off the Mullet Peninsula, just an absolutely wonderful place with a fantastic history. Uh, to it but it was abandoned after the big storm there was a big storm in 1927 uh, just i uh, don't uh, delve too much into history but a huge storm in in 1927 caught the fishing community of the west coast of ireland completely by surprise in the month of november i think or october and uh, th there was drownings up and down the south coast and it led to people giving up it broke the hearts of the people on the islands because uh, the people who died in the fishing boats were all 18 and 25 and 23 and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. it just it just broke their hearts. And Inish Kay was no exception. The two islands at Inish Kay were abandoned uh, shortly enough thereafter. They just couldn't couldn't take the loss of, I think, 15 or 16 young men. So that one storm led to the collapse of, uh, of a lot of fishing in the area? A, a lot of... Uh, inhabited islands okay uh, the, the one storm there's uh, the, there must have been a dozen inhabited islands that shortly thereafter now it might have taken 10 years for the old people to be persuaded but it might have taken even longer some of them lasted into the 1950s but that was the biggest significant event unless you uh, unless you go into the sociology of it and say well look they didn't have education they didn't have the same education they had no access to priests or doctors which were both important to them and it, it, it just they felt that they were at a huge disadvantage as human beings and they saw the wealth on the mainland and they wanted a piece of it.
that led to the you know to the abandonment of an awful lot of the islands yeah so with those uh, abandoned islands being some of your favorites uh, do you have one in particular that you'd like to share that tell us a little bit about the the trip to the island and what you experienced I would have said Inish K South. I mean, it was one of the first that we went to. It's very, very beautiful. It's got a hill. Um, it's all short grass because it's grazed by sheep, which is always a tremendous advantage uh, when you're visiting an island as a tourist. Uh, it means that it's nice and pleasant to walk about the place. It's got water in a well, which you can dig out quite quickly because it's in sand. Um, there's an abandoned village. It is picturesque beyond description. The abandoned village is right at the beach, which is right at the pier. So it's it's a remarkable place. There's rock climbing there. It's, it's just very beautiful. The history is that the Inish Kays were divided in, in there's two islands in south and north. And the population of the two islands were at loggerheads with each other always. They had different attitudes to life. And uh, in the civil war in Ireland of 100 years ago, uh, the North Island went with the government and the South Island went with the rebels and they at one stage had a pitch battle across the small little uh, intervening creek and they threw stones at each other. I don't know if anybody was hurt but uh, there was a whaling industry on the South Island in 1907. It lasted for seven years until the outbreak of the First World War. The Norwegians as always, uh, whaling uh, as you know is a very vexed industry and people aren't allowed to whale and when people when whalers are told they can't whale what they do is they go to another country where they're allowed to whale so what they did is they came to the, the Norwegians then as now were of that kind of frame of mind and uh, they came to Ireland and they set up a whaling industry there uh, that lasted for seven years and you can still see the remnants of their timber houses and the metal cauldrons where they reduce the blubber and render the carcasses of the whales and so on but it was a thriving industry for about seven years they spoke irish on the island and extraordinarily unlike any other island there was no literary record of their passing and no history of the island was done until somebody from france a lady i don't recall her name immediately uh, wrote a history in the french language of it and subsequently, more recently, about 20 years ago, a teacher in Dublin set out to write the history and did. I think his name was Dornan. That, 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 it's, but by and large, it's just such a beautiful place. Uh, you can imagine yourself on a horseback galloping all around. But it's open plains. And there was one other special thing. In order to shelter themselves from the wind, their vegetables, they build them on little plots which they called lazy beds but they tilted them away from the wind so that they were higher on the windward side to give shelter to the seedlings when the seedlings were coming up in the springtime interesting Ab absolutely remarkable place lovely 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 no ferry there or anything else like that and there's two or three holiday homes there now beautiful 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 you mentioned sheep um, grazing the island so they're 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 sheep they're there now they're they're still there oh yes 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 oh yeah yeah Val they're, they're somebody's valued farmland. How hard is it to reach uh, the Inish Kay Islands? Well, you'd have to make a deal with a local ferryman in Black Sod. Uh, I, I'm sure if you went onto Google, you could find anything these days. But you paddled out to him? 
Oh, we did, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. So how, how much of a challenge is it to paddle out to them? It's, it's, it's not a huge challenge because it's, it's, it's part of a ring of islands and the paddle out is, for the most part, through the centre of it. It's almost like a, a atoll in the Pacific Ocean. So it's relatively sheltered and it's only about, only about an hour and a half, five or six miles. Now, for all the islands that, uh, that you've, you've personally catalogued, I guess I'll use that, are these all islands that you've been able to paddle to? There'd be one or two that I had been on in my youth. Uh, Rathlin Island, I haven't paddled to. That's in the northeast of Ireland. Uh, I was there on the ferry, uh, bird watching uh, in the 1980s. I went to Carricka Reed Island, it's also in the north. By There's a rope bridge out to it. Uh, tourists walk out that way. Sure. You may be absolutely certain there was one or two that I had already been on before I started. I mean, I didn't know I was into doing anything special or different or remarkable until I'd a lot of islands under my belt. And I didn't start counting until I was perhaps up to 100 or 150 or something. And I didn't start having myself rigorously audited by Sean Pierce. He's a (laughs) bird watching, sea kayaking pal of mine and a hard, hard man. You don't get away without anything. I have to prove everything I set foot on now uh, with, with Sean. But when, when I had about 250 and we knew it was something really, really special and we were coming up to the, the publication of the first Ilan in 2004, he started rigorously auditing me and we have very careful records ever since then. It's just important. You never know for posterity. Well, Sean was a guest for us on uh, on episode 80 of Paddling the Blue. Oh, um, gosh, yeah. Great guy. Yeah. yeah. Now, what has been the hardest island to catalog? Well, th- there was one or two where you can only go ashore by swimming. Ah. Uh, insofar as it's not possible to step out of your kayak. A kayak is actually a very inefficient way of doing what I was doing, other than to get to the base of the island. But to get out of the kayak and onto a rock in, in the North Atlantic isn't always that easy. And if you have somebody there who'll hold your boat, you might be able to step up and get onto a rock and drag your kayak up after you. And it can be very, very difficult. There was one or two incidents and the fast net in the southwest. I mean, we had no chance there was two of us out there. Dead flat, calm day. But the fast net is a peculiar beast. And uh, it's very shallow in the immediate area of it. And uh, there was quite big surge and sand swells in the immediate area of it, even though it was flat calm, 200 yards off it. And uh, there was nothing for it, but we went ashore one at a time. You jumped out of your kayak, you swam ashore and you went around and you, you took a photograph or two and hung around as long as you wanted while the other guy sat on the water. And then you swam back out and rinse and repeat, he did the same. There's other ones, I would say the Thiracht in the Blasket Islands. Again, it was a question of jump out, swim ashore, but you were able to tie a tether to the front of your kayak and you could pull your kayak up onto the, there's a lighthouse there, so there's a steps and a platform and with great difficulty, you can pull your kayak up. Uh, that was with Sean Pierce actually. We developed a process whereby the fellow who was going ashore first, which was usually me, went with an empty kayak and all of the gear, if any, like if you brought your lunch or any other safety gear and all that sort of thing, uh, went in the other kayak. So there was two people to, to get the second kayak that was full of gear. It was a big difficulty. The worst incident of the whole lot was on the Bull Rock 
off the end of Dursey. It's, it's another one of these jobs where there's uh, steps up to a platform and you had to jump out of your kayak and swim ashore. But the problem with this one is that there was a tidal flow past it that was quite strong and you got one shot at the title. And if you made a mess of it, you made a mess of it. And that was it. One of us got ashore, one of us didn't. It all went wrong and uh, there was a capsize and a swim and I had to get back onto the water and go for the other fella. The other fella was my mentor and it was my first time ever to, to go and look after him. He had spent a dozen years or more looking after me and <laughs> <laughs> suddenly the apprentice was out there looking after the master. But it, it all worked out in the end. But that was the closest I ever got to getting on the nine o'clock news on a Sunday night <laughs> from sea kayaking. Interesting how um, you, you would think that the most remote of the islands would be the most challenging, but in some cases it's not. Those are three very remote islands. Sorry if I have misled you. Dorsey Bull is about four miles off the end of an island, which is itself about eight miles long, which is itself a few hundred yards. It's connected to the mainland by a cable car, of all things, at the other end, but it's sausage-shaped. So, I mean, the Dorsey Bull is... Um, Oh, I don't have a map in front of me, but it could be eight or ten miles off the tip of the Beira Peninsula. So, I mean, it doesn't get any more remote. And if you're down in the southwest of Ireland and you look out to sea from anywhere and see the fast net on the horizon, you'll realize it is also very remote. It's a very long distance out. And the Thiroct is the furthest out of all of the Blasket Islands, which is off the Dingle Peninsula. It's the furthest out of all the big islands off the of the Blaskets, off the end of the Dingle Peninsula. Those are three very remote islands and examples that I gave you, actually. What goes into creating a guide of this magnitude? 25 years. What's been your greatest joy in, in putting the guide together? Oh, I would say the day it got published, the first edition. What was that like for you? I have to admit to a certain degree of vanity. Sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to suddenly to be, quote, an author, unquote, it was, uh, you know, it feeds anybody's ego and anybody who says it doesn't is lying to you. Either, either that or they're very stupid. <laughs> but there's no money in books. There's only ego and, and contribution. Now, th this one is contributing to a specific cause, so be it. But the motivation isn't money, it's ego. I would say, I, do you know what runs it close? I, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but when edition two came out, I got a phone call from the Department of Foreign Affairs. They wanted a signed copy of my book. In fact, two signed copies of my book, and they wouldn't tell me why. At first, they just asked me to, to go into them. Now, in my profession, I'm in the legal business, or was, I'm retired now. Uh, I had dealings with the Department of Foreign Affairs, and I thought there was a problem or something with some of the work I was doing with them. So I, I went in and they explained it to me, and they told me that if I mentioned the fact that they wanted two of my books signed, if I mentioned it to anybody, then the reason for which they needed them would evaporate on the spot. So I was to keep my mouth absolutely 100% shut, and I did. And what was happening was that our president, Michael D. Higgins, was going on a return visit to Windsor Park. It's a, it's a palace in London, Prince Charles as he then was, King Charles as he is now. And as you know, nation states tend to give their hosts a little present, and our president gave the King of England a copy of my book. That's a famous reader for sure. 
Yeah, well, as they say here in Ireland, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> now, you did not know what was happening to those books. You just knew that the Department of Foreign Affairs wanted to sign copies. They were going to do something special with them. Oh, they wouldn't. They they would. They wouldn't say, and they wouldn't tell me. But I knew. Of course, okay. I knew. Oh, it was plain as day. Uh, this is the biggest thing. Anglo-Irish relations have always been very difficult for the last 800 years, and their highest point was when we're talking about 2014. The Queen came to visit us, and our president went back on a return visit. It's the the point of the most cordial entente cordiale between the two nations at any point in the last 800 years was just at that point. So, I mean, it was big. Everybody was talking about it all day, every day. It was huge. Well, a fitting gift... Um, of a yeah. <laughs> uh, of a book that that catalogs six hundred and twelve islands uh, all around Ireland, oh, including some that are in the United Kingdom, ah. because the Elon deals with the island of Ireland, which includes for Northern Ireland. Okay, and uh, there's one Scottish island, according to the Scots, Rockall, out in the middle of the Atlantic. Scotland says it owns it, and they're probably right, but don't say <laughs> I said so. <laughs> What would be one of the hidden challenges that you never expected when you started cataloging? Just it's never-ending quality. It's still going on. I added two islands to the soft copy on the website in June of this year. I'm still at it. Just how long it takes. I, I would say some people might not, could look at the book and say that's very nice and not realize that there's a lifetime of effort into it. I'm 30 years at it now. For someone who doesn't have the book, what might they find in the book in terms of content? Uh, the funny thing is that uh, what what keeps coming back is that people are astonished at how much detail there is about mundane detail. And you see, everybody goes on holidays in Ireland to the, a particular spot and they have their own favourite spot. and they, have, they go to a pier or a strand or a beach or a headland or an island. And the first thing they do is check is that in it. And they're absolutely astonished to find every small rock and reef and uh, islet and stuff they didn't even know the name of themselves that they're looking at every day on their holidays. And they, they read about it. And I, I think it's the sheer comprehensive nature of it. Its virtue is how comprehensive it is rather than how interesting it is. The interest is in the eye of the beholder. I know that for me, I'm uh, just paging through the book and and imagining all the places, um, and you're looking at the cow, for example, and, uh, and just seeing the arches on the cow, and just imagining being there and paddling there. Uh, it's just something for me that's fascinating. Well, the cow is next door to the bull. Yes. So you've got some more idea now about the adventure that we had that day on the bull. <laughs> <laughs> the cow is the next island. There's the cow, the bull, and the calf. We'll make sure that we have uh, links to the book in the uh, in the show notes for folks to be able to see it online, uh, but then also to pick up a copy for themselves. There's, like I said, there's something special about having a book in your hand and being able to page through it and just imagine all the places that are there. And Do you find uh, a lot of non-paddlers using the book as a resource? I do, yeah, for, for the reasons that I'm telling you that people go on holidays. Some, somebody comes across it and in somebody else's house's, house and they look up the area where they habitually go on holidays and they can't believe the amount of detail they see about it what hill walkers do. I mean, er everybody gets their own take on it. I have to give a, a shout out to Kevin O'Sullivan. So Kevin O'Sullivan was the 
the gentleman who's a guest on episode 69, and he uh, he sent me a copy of Elon, and it's been a, a, a treasured one in my library for sure. Great. I, uh, I know Kevin well, and uh, he's a pilot, and uh, he sent me a photograph from halfway across the Atlantic one day. It, all the times he's flown to New York or wherever it is, he, Boston or wherever it is he flies to from Ireland, in, in as part of his day job, he never saw Rockall out in the middle of the Atlantic until about uh, a year ago, and he sent me a photograph of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, this has been fantastic, uh, learning about you, learning about Ilan, and uh, learning about your experiences on the water. Where can listeners find you or find the book? The best place to, to find me is on my website for the book. I mean, they can read the book there uh, for free on the website, including... The soft copy is there, complete, it's up to date, all 612 islands. And an amazing recent feature is that all of the grid references given in the text are hyperlinks to an overhead photograph. So you can look at whatever you're reading about with the one click of your mouse. And the website is, and it's free, it's free, there's no charge. You only have to put your hand anywhere near your pocket if you want an actual copy of the book itself uh, from, from a bookshop, that sort of thing. Um, it's ilan.org, O-I-L-E-A-I-N dot O-R-G. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thanks for putting it together. Paddlers appreciate it. Others appreciate it as well. And uh, I encourage everybody to check out ilan.org and check out the book. Thank you. So one final question for you, David, and that is, um, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? There's a guy I, I greatly admire. I don't know whether you've had him already or not. His name is Jim Kennedy, and he runs a sea kayaking school down in the south of Ireland, and he's a thorough gentleman. He is so experienced both in Ireland and abroad. He runs trips to the west coast of America, and uh, he educates a lot of people down around Cork. He runs trips in Cork City and out on the islands and the coastline of West Cork. He'd be a terrific fella. Okay. I recommend him strongly. Fantastic. Jim Kennedy. Fantastic. Atlantic. The, the name of his company is Atlantic Sea Kayaking. All right. Well, I will definitely reach out to Jim and uh, we'll have an opportunity to get him on the show and, and learn about him as well. Great. David, thank you again for the opportunity to, to speak with you today and to learn more about you and your paddling and, and the book. And thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Ilan is truly one of my favorite books. Thanks to Kevin O'Sullivan from episode number 69 for graciously sending me a copy of the book. I am a guidebook and map and chart nerd, and this one is a real treasure. Visit the show notes for this episode, number 104, for a link to get your own copy of Ilan, and a link to the website where you can read the book online and see the overhead views as well. That's a really neat addition. The website is great for on-the-fly reference, but for me, I just love to have the book in my hand. 
Thanks again to our partners at OnlineSeaKayaking.com for extending a special offer to you. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. For our next episode, we'll make our way to Jersey, and for those in the USA, we're not talking about the state of New Jersey, we're talking about the Channel Islands. We'll be chatting with Nikki and Kevin Mansell about this paddler's paradise. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.